This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. So James, we've got only a few more days of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister and so far this summer he has been relatively quiet on various issues but today he has waded into the energy subject and thrown his support behind nuclear power. Can you tell us about what's happened? Yeah, so he's given a big speech uh, basically backing Sizewell C and announcing more government money for it and you know, it's a classic Boris Johnson's speech. You know, it's a reference to Lady Bird books uh, and how that inspired him uh, to be pro-nuclear power, attempt to blame the last Labour government for the energy crisis, which I think will, will, will be quite difficult to persuade voters of. And then lots of optimism about how, you know, once you can get through this winter, we'll be off Putin's hydrocarbons and everything will be, will be better. I also, though, thought it was interesting because there was the first shot from Boris Johnson across the bows of a potential Liz Truss premiership Mm. when he basically said offshore wind is much cheaper and better than fracking and that was quite interesting given all the reports we've had in recent days that Jacob Rees-Mogg a big fracking advocate is likely to be appointed as business secretary and there's lots of talk that one of Liz Truss's first actions will be to lift the moratorium on fracking now I mean, actually lifting that moratorium is relatively limited because what she has said throughout this is that she is in favour of fracking where there is local support. Now, that is one of those statements like saying that you're in favour of eating turkeys when they vote for Christmas. And, you know, they, 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 despite the jobs right. and the money that fracking would bring, there isn't anywhere where where fracking commands local support. And it is worth, if you go and speak to the people around Boris Johnson who took it out of, who, who in 2019 insisted that the manifesto talked about didn't talk about fracking. It wasn't driven by environmentalist considerations and all this stuff. It was driven by the MPs in those seats affected who were like, look, we will find it very difficult to win these seats if the Labour Party can say, vote vote Tory and you'll, there'll be fracking going on locally. I think there is a... I think fracking has, despite the fact, the potential it offers and the, the, the jobs that it could bring, fracking, it, it, fracking is just not popular locally and like and so unless you are prepared to override those local objections now there is an argument for doing that but i suspect that the trust government will have you know so but i suspect that a trust government would have enough fights on its hands mm. without choosing to do that and isabel what do you make of boris johnson wading into this uh, subject right now given as, as i said earlier this whole summer he's been relatively quiet and saying you know energy policy is for the next government to decide could was cynic say that this is about his legacy in the last few days of his premiership? Yes, and if it is, it's a very Boris Johnson way of approaching this, which is to sort of have quite a bit of fun and then suddenly realise that there's a deadline approaching. I'm sure anyone who dealt with his Telegraph column probably recognises this uh, the last minute nature of his of his legacy building that's going on at the moment. But I, I thought it was also interesting, and James referred to his attempts to blame the last Labour government for this. I think when you get to the stage that there are people who have hit puberty, who have no ability to remember or have not experienced life under a Labour government, I think it's quite difficult to to keep blaming that government. But there was also the sort of the other side to that, which is to put pressure on his successors to take responsibility for sort of long term 
planning, the, the kind of long term planning that is necessary for energy security, for the construction of new nuclear plants. And to a certain extent, it's him saying either way, if you look backwards or forwards, it's not my fault that Britain is having this energy crisis and it will not be my fault if long term there is uh, not a change to, in politicians' approach to this, which I think you could probably sense a theme throughout his premiership of, of, of finding other people who were to blame on one thing or another. I think there's also a, it's a point that actually the, the, the sum of money that he's pledging, 700 million, it's, it's not very much. It's not going to guarantee that the deal to build this power station is signed and sealed. And so it's, it is a very sort of last minute end of a premiership when, as we've said, uh, somebody else has to make the big decisions now kind of announcement. Mm. And James, speaking of the next government, last night we had the last uh, leadership hustings of the summer. It's been a very long summer. So in that final event held in London this time, did we learn anything new about either of the campaigns? Did they come up with any new policies? So I thought it was interesting that Liz Truss said so two striking things. One was, uh, read my lips, no new taxes. Now, lots of people say, oh, this is an unwise thing to say, given the unpredictable nature of economic circumstances. I think this just doesn't really have much choice other than to say it, because a hard, large part of her campaign has been saying that Rishi Sunak's argument for having raised national insurance is, well, COVID totally changed the situation. And so that, that manifesto promise, you know, couldn't operate in, in that environment. And, you know, we were breaking the manifesto promise on debt. So we also had to to break that promise. So I think if she'd said that, it would have, that, you know, she had to say what she said, given the campaign that she's run. I thought the bigger hostage to fortune was her when she said that she was just ruling out energy rationing. She should have said, no, that's not going to happen. I thought you could have said, you know, that's not the plan. That's not, but, you know, but because there is a chance, given how potentially volatile energy supplies are, the knock-on effects on the UK, if Russia did totally cut off gas supplies to Europe, what could happen in a very cold winter where, where, where energy stopped flowing over the interconnectors because more was needed in Europe. I thought, given what the, where the poles are, it was a bold statement for someone to mm. make in, in, in that circumstance. I also thought the other interesting thing about the Hustings was, and look, you can't say that a Hustings audience is totally representative of, of, a, of a regional membership. But I think it was fair to say that audience in London seemed to be more pro-Rishi Sunak than some of the audi- some of the other Hustings audiences we have seen. And that, I think, might suggest some interesting things about geographical mm. questions in the Tory party of who supports which candidate about candidate where. I think the I think ultimately now there has been this element that this contest this contest has taken place over the summer and the, the logic for it taking place over the summer and it is worth remembering that back in the day there were people arguing for a contest that should basically begin in September mm. and run till um party conference in October, right? So, you know, so, so, but I think one of the things that is striking is how much worse all of the problems that will face the incoming Prime Minister have got during the summer. And that you, if you look at the, if you look at the problems that there were at the start of this campaign, I don't think you can say that any of them have got better where we are now. And I think the other big, question that I have is how much of this is when I was discussing this on Spectator TV earlier how much of these problems for example in the NHS how much is it now how much can the new Prime Minister actually hope to achieve before the winter 
arrives. And so I think this is one of the other other huge questions. And I think the other big question is prioritisation. I don't see, I think the new Prime Minister is going to struggle to do much more than cost of living, you know, economic stability and the NHS in their first few months in the job. And I think that, you know, so I think I think some of the other things that, you know, the idea that these are going to become kind of, you know, pressing, you know, that you're going to you're going to have a big fight over online harms, for mm. example, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think it's going to have to go onto the back burner because you are going to the new prime minister is going to have to ruthlessly prioritise. Isabel, on that point about the regional appeal of um, list trust versus Rishi Sunak, it's interesting that this week there have been reports that the Liberal Democrats are basically ramping up their preparations, especially in the south of England, to contest those seats that are a bit more leafy. How much stock do you put into their theory that list trust isn't as popular in the south as she could be in the north? Yeah, I think I think that's interesting because, I mean, it, again, it depends who you talk to within the Conservative Party as to whether... Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak are the you know the greatest thing that could ever happen to the red wall or the blue wall or or whatever and I I think you know we're still waiting to hear on so many different policy areas particularly planning leveling up all these different areas where where both of them have been really quite vague actually and um I think with with the Liberal Democrats, sort of some of the things they fed off in terms of making inroads into the blue wall, if it's possible to make inroads into a wall, are um, disputes over the planning process. Now, we've had pledges from trust to move away from top down targets. Does that mean no house building? What's the impact there? Does that mean another overhaul of the planning system, which, you know, when you shake things up like a snow globe, there's always there's always a lot of mess and a lot of noise. However, you reform the planning system. How would the new prime minister talk to these traditional Tory heartlands? And I think we've probably seen quite a lot of um, examples of that during this leadership contest with some of the sort of more traditional conservative preoccupations. But but I, I'm not sure that there's a that there's necessarily yet really cause for the Lib Dems to be confident or, or anxious just yet. And James, in the magazine this week, Kate Andrews has a piece looking at what we call the three Trusketeers, these economists who are backing Liz Truss and being essentially her uh, mini think tank. Can you tell us about what the Trust camp think they are, their economic plan is in the short term and the long term? So it's Julian Jessup, Gerald Lyons and Patrick Minford. And and uh, one recommends all pieces of the spectator, but sometimes one does it with a, with a double underline. And I would definitely do this one with a double underline. I think it's an absolutely fascinating piece they've they've spoken very frankly to Kate about what they think and I think what is so interesting is what their logic is their logic is right now that you can get away with borrowing an an awful lot more Mm. because that is the markets will see that that is what will spur growth now I think there is a risk for the Conservative Party in this because it is very easy to see how the left can adopt this argument we need to you know and I thought the other interesting thing was when June Jessup talks about, you know, look, you have to deal with health finance in inverted commas. And I think we all know what that means. It's three letters. Ultimately, to get spending down. Now, maybe I am being overly politically cynical, but I struggle to imagine any Tory government actually managing to do that. I remember what Chris Patton said to, to Margaret Thatcher about the NHS, you know, why are you pretending to be Count Dracula when you're actually running a blood transfusion service? Uh, that, I think, is where my kind of slight scepticism about 
that you don't just end up with a bigger debt because you don't actually end up controlling spending in the long run. I think that, that, is, that is the risk. But I cannot recommend the piece enough. I think it's an absolutely fascinating read into the mindset of, of those who will be hugely influential in the trust administration. Mm. And as well, finally, um, there's a fascinating report out today from the Children's Commissioner, uh, Rachel D'Souza, uh, which has basically talks about the decline of traditional British family life. It's got some fascinating stats in there, such as the rising proportion of children live, growing up under lone parent households, as opposed to a few decades ago. What did you make of this report? It's such an interesting report because Dame Rachel D'Souza has set out, was commissioned to uh, examine what the family looks like and what it means to young people in society today. And uh, her, um, as you mentioned, 44% of children will have spent some time outside of this uh, nuclear family. And she also points out that this that Britain is really an anomaly within Europe. So almost a quarter of families are headed by a lone parent compared with the EU average of one eighth. But she's not as some commentators and campaign groups have, have, have tried to sort of use this report. She's not lamenting the decline of the nuclear family, traditional family, although I think the nuclear family is quite a modern concept, actually, if you look at how involved wider families have been in history in bringing up children. Um, we've actually become much more isolated in sort of parenting terms in, in modern society. But she, she's not lamenting that. She, she's just trying to understand what the impact on policy would be. And she also points out that even though the decline of the traditional family is something her report finds, she hasn't found a decline in the importance of family. So children and young people have, have told her that family is you know one of the most important things to them and that that's where they get a lot of their strength and where they take their problems. And I think there's really interesting response to this, which is either you say, oh, this is dreadful, we need to incentivise marriage through through the tax system, which... I've always been slightly wary of because I think I'm not sure that financial incentives to stay in a marriage are necessarily the way to build strong relationships. Or you can look at it and say, well, are we going to sort of say, well, we are where we are. How does society adapt to this new iteration of the family, to blended families, to single parent families? And rather than regarding anything that's a non-nuclear 2.4 children and, you know, two parent headed Householders as being a sort of failure start to try to work out both through policy and through wider society how to make those families stronger and better for for children. So, I think most people listening to this podcast, if you say the word stepmother, will think of a character from a Grimm's fairy tale rather than actually part of modern parenting. And does is there? In my view, there is a, a need for a better modelling of what step parenting should look like you know there's there's a you know a whole bookshops worth of books and endless sort of mummy blogs out there on you know how to bring up your child and always endless advice and expectations on on mothers there's very little expectations for for step parents and to my mind it it would be great if as part of moving away from the grimm's fairy tale step parenting uh, there was a sort of expectation on on how step parents should should you know be a nurturing part of of their blended family's life. And so I think there's a really interesting challenge, I think, for policymakers who might not want to be judgmental, but also might find it very tempting just to say, OK, well, there's nothing we can do. Whereas I think there is actually quite a, quite a lot that a, a lot of groups, not just politicians, can, can do to respond to this. 
James and Isabel, thanks very much. And if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch us live at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster on the 13th of September. Tickets are available at spectator.co.uk forward slash after Boris. Thanks for listening.